When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our brand new Substack newsletter and website at LetItRollPodcast.com. We've got archives of every episode sorted by genre, era, guest, co-host, and miniseries. It's also a great way to support the show if you can afford it. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes Peter Benjaminson to discuss his book, The Lost Supreme, The Life of Dream Girl Florence Ballard, which kicks off a special Let Motown Roll miniseries. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by Peter Benjaminson to discuss his book, The Lost Supreme, The Life of Dream Girl Florence Ballard. Peter, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. And I, I got to warn our listeners, this is possibly going to be one of the most depressing and sad episodes we ever do. Uh, it's uh, And there's sexual assault and exploitation, and so, you know, if you're not ready for that, might want to back out now. This is a, a heavy tale, and Peter's book pulls no punches. So, Peter, at first, tell us how the book came about and how you, because uh, you had some unique access to, to Ms. Ballard before she passed. Yes, well, I was a reporter for the Detroit Free Press in 1975. I was uh, sitting in the newsroom, and uh, the editor, one of the editors came over, John Opadal, and uh, he, he looked very excited. He told me that... Uh, he just heard that a former Supreme was on welfare. Uh, this, this was a big deal in Detroit in 75 because Motown was still a dominant record company. It was a Detroit company. And for uh, a member of their all-time greatest group to be on welfare was really something. So uh, I uh, immediately jumped up, uh, grabbed a free press staff car, uh, roared out to Flo's house. I had her address. She lived in, in Detroit, as I did, and uh, uh, went in and uh, actually I knocked on the door. She wasn't there. There was no answer. So I waited about 20 minutes. She came back with her two daughters in tow from grocery shopping. And uh, I went in and interviewed her. Uh, I told her I knew she was on welfare. Uh, she knew I knew. So uh, the interview uh, went from there. 
And then that turned into a series of interviews, correct? Yes. Well, the inter- thank you. Uh, the interview uh, was only about, oh, I don't know, 45 minutes at the most uh, because I was on deadline for the free press, which was the daily. It was the morning daily in Detroit. So I uh, I got took my notes, uh, which were just on a notepad, rushed back to the office and wrote a story, which the next day was on the front page, uh, you know, Supreme on Welfare. Uh, this uh, inaugurated a tremendous amount of public interest because, you know, everybody figured she was in the number one group in the world only a couple of years before. And suddenly she was on Aid to Dependent Children, which was the big welfare uh, program of the day, certainly in Detroit. So what was she doing there? Uh, and the Detroit News, which is a competition, uh, sent several reporters out to interview her and other all the newspaper other newspaper and TV stations were uh, interviewing her. So it became a really big deal. So she called me up and, uh, you know, she'd been a little uh, worried about the story, the stories possibly making her look like uh, an idiot uh, for being, you know, famous and now on welfare. But uh, they didn't. They treated her sympathetically. Mine did, too. So she invited me back to her house for a series of uh, uh, tape-recorded interviews her idea was that we could write jointly write a book about her life, you know, from the bottom, then to the top, and then back to the bottom in just a few years. And it would uh, it would sell very well. She was right. Uh, and I went ahead and wrote the book. Long after she passed. And you had a difficulty getting it published. It, it didn't come out until decades after those interviews, correct? Oh, yes, that's true. I, I'm sorry. I should have said that uh, from this. <laughs> From the perspective of my extreme old age, I look back on it, it seems like just a few minutes, but yes, uh, I uh, uh, interviewed her, I uh, did the transcript, and then I tried to sell it to uh, various publishers. Uh, with a fellow reporter uh, at the Free Press, I had already done one book. It was uh, called Investigative Reporting. It was the first textbook in the field. It came out right after the uh, Watergate uh, triumph, and it was very, very popular. So uh, I got access to sold well. I got access to a lot of publishers. I told them I wanted to do the Flo Ballard book, uh, and uh, but there was there was really no interest. I had a I had a uh, a uh, interview in New York. I think it was with Random House or one of those big publishers. And a, a editor, young lady editor, took me out to dinner, and uh, I was ready for her big offer. But she said, uh, "You know what we really like is a book on Janis Joplin." Uh, <laughs> now that that turned out to be astute on her part, because although Joplin di- had died in 1970, uh, there since been at least five books about her, and they've all sold well. I mean, I love Janice as a singer. I never met her, but I don't know. I don't really know what the total attraction is. Maybe a depressed white woman or something. Anyway, uh, the books have done well, but I, I, I was like, I stuck to my guns. I said, nah, or I didn't say nah. I said, no, I don't think so. Uh, I'd, uh, I really, I've got this unique transcript from Flo Ballard, and I'd really like to write a book about her. Uh, but they, they turned me down. So. Uh, then 
I think while I was there trying to sell the book, uh, this is about a year after the interview, Flo died at age 32. Uh, this was uh, amazingly young to die. She had no apparent health problems, and it's still a slight mystery as to what killed her. Uh, they did an autopsy, but there was nothing special. I mean, she died of some kind of heart problem, but there, you know, people were talking about possible drug use or alcohol, but she didn't use any drugs. And she quit alcohol. She did have an alcohol problem previously, but she quit. She quit a long time ago. So it was a fairly mysterious death. Uh, and I thought now's my chance. Uh, she's dead, and there was a huge funeral. Diana Ross appeared at. I was there too, and uh, you know, hundreds of people were there, and uh, a crowd tore. It was a big funeral with lots of floral arrangements lots of warders, a crowd tore apart the uh, flower arrangements, just trying to get souvenirs of the death of the Law Supreme. Uh, and uh, once again, I thought, geez, I should be able to, you know, now that she's dead, I should be able to sell this book. So I, I went back to New York and uh, went to uh, Grove Press and gave them a whole pitch for how a book on the Law Supreme would be so great. And uh they said, but you know, there's never there's never been a book on the Motown Record Company. You're, you're going, you're pushing too far ahead. So they said, how would you like to write a book on the Motown Record Company? By this time, I'd become frustrated, you know, with trying to sell a Flo Ballard book, and uh, and this was Barney Rossett, who was a a very famous publisher. He asked me personally if I could write a book, the first book ever published in the U.S. On flow on excuse me on the Motown Record Company, and I said okay fine you know we we signed the deal. I then spent a couple of years writing the book. Uh, it came out. It was a big success. The story of Motown Grove Press published it in I believe '79, uh, and it was it's a classic. So say again. It's a classic. One one I've read many times. Oh yeah yeah. Really, it's the first book, and I, I interviewed a lot of people. Motown made a mistake at the time. They uh, they had a very stupid PR man, uh, uh, Crook, who's now dead. And uh, I went out there and said, look, I wanted, I'm, I'm very friendly to Motown. You know, I, I just want to do the true story. So I flew I was living in Miami at the time. I flew out to uh, Los Angeles and uh, to see Motown. That's where they had moved. I said, look, I just want to do a book about the true book about Motown. I, you know, I, I don't have any access to grind, and uh, it'll just be a fair story. Everything on both sides. You can contribute anything you want. And he said, absolutely not. We're not going to let you talk to anybody, uh, anyone who works for Motown. So I, inwardly, I thought, what an idiot. Uh, and uh, I, because uh, then the only people that I could talk to were people who didn't like Motown, fired people, you know, executives who quit, stuff like that. But nevertheless, I did do, I did as fair a job as I could under the circumstances. And that book was so popular, it was republished in 2018, uh, or maybe 2019, in the, the second edition uh, by Rare Bird Books. It's still selling. You can buy it online. Uh, it's in various formats, uh, including... Uh, you know, what are they, whatever they call a spoken word book. Online. Audio book. Uh, audio book. Thank you. Uh, 
So, uh, you know, now I'm, I'm going on so long, I forgot the question. <laughs> That's all right. It's time for me to jump in with a cue anyway. This is the Primettes, which was the Supremes before they were called the Supremes. This is a song called Pretty Baby with Flo Ballard on lead vocals. was the primettes which became this who became the supremes singing pretty baby with flo ballard on lead vocals and now if you could give us a quick summary of just how big were the supremes how famous was flo ballard and why was it such a shock when she ended up well on welfare and then suddenly dying at age 32 uh well let me first finish the other story and tell you that the book did eventually come out but we can get back into that later uh the big deal about the supremes was that they integrated the American music business, the uh, previous uh, American music business in terms of the most popular records was mostly white. You know, uh, how much is that dog window? I think there was Patty Page and it was. Rock Hudson or uh, various people, uh, uh, all white guys and white women singing various uh, songs. And then there was a, a, a sort of underground black stream of uh, very funky uh, rock and roll songs, but they were, they were separate people, you know, there are black record stores and right record, white record stores. And that was it. The Supremes and Motown, uh, under Gordy, who was a black guy, but very, uh, very much into integration and making a lot of money, uh, united the two streams of the Motown record company, which is located in Detroit. And that was a big deal. You know, he got black rhythm, uh, white melody, uh, and put them all together very astutely. Uh, people said he also had been an auto worker, like many people in Detroit, and he realized you had to have interchangeable parts. Uh, different uh, vocalists would be moved around between different composers, uh, different uh, instrumental players, you know, different producers. They were like wheels revolving until they found the right combination, and they found the right combination. Uh, the best of the right combination with the Supremes. They were they were perfectly named, and Flo Ballard came up with the name be, because they became the world's most popular singing group for some time. They were certainly the world's most popular black singing group, black female singing group. Uh, and uh, they toured all over the world, Japan, uh, England, uh, many uh, countries. Uh, it was basically the union of black and white music, which was, I think, a big, big deal in American music. Yeah, they went toe-to-toe with the Beatles from 64 to 67 with 10 number one hits, including five in a row. And and that was out of 14 singles they released in that period, and all 14 of them went uh, top 10. Just yeah, an incredible run. And, and uh, you know, they were on the Ed Sullivan Show week in, week out. Just an absolute triumph and unique in American history up to that point. Like you said, this is the first time that black performers are competing on the level. And the Beatles were an unprecedented pop phenomenon. And for a black girl group from Detroit, you know, the Beatles annihilated much of the American 
pop industry and the Supremes were unbowed and and went toe to toe with them with Holland Dozier Holland as the brilliant songwriting and production team and the incredible unparalleled funk brothers um playing the backup instrumentation but the Supremes themselves were the stars. They were the ones doing the TV appearances and singing the songs and became icons. I mean, I, I can remember as a kid reading Mad Magazine and there would be, you know, characters of the Supremes right up there with Liz Taylor and, you know, Richard Burton and everybody else. They were big, big, big. And as you say in the introduction, that Flo's story has a hopeful beginning, a bright triumph and a tragic end. Tell us a little bit about the hopeful beginning of her story and her life. Where did she come from? Where were her people from? How did she get into music? Well, her uh, parents were from Mississippi. Uh, They immigrated north uh, in order to escape segregation, or at least nasty segregation, and to work in uh, the Detroit auto plants, which... uh, always needed workers because it was it was hard work but on the other hand it was very well paid and it wasn't as discriminatory as uh working on a you know a cotton uh farm somewhere in the south it was a much better work environment uh so her her parents basically migrated from uh southern states met in detroit uh and they had i believe it was uh, 13 children I was 13. 13, yeah, she was a great. Yeah, so, and they lived in uh, genteel poverty. I mean, there were housing projects. In fact, the the Detroit housing projects were quite good at the time. Uh, So they were were all supported while living in the housing project by the one man, the father, who uh, worked in an auto plant. And uh, it was was a secure kind of existence. So... uh, and now I forgot the question you asked me. What was uh, it? Just her beginnings and, and how she got into music. There was a story in the book, I don't know if you remember, of uh, the family being harassed by a racist white neighbor, and another white neighbor actually stood up for them. Do you remember that story? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yes, Flo was holding one of her infant sisters in her arms, and uh, a uh, white boy from nearby uh, started throwing stones at the or pebbles or stones at them, and Flo protected the baby, but then uh, gave the baby to another one of her siblings and uh, ran after the boy. And the uh, the boy the boy's father saw saw what he thought was happening and uh, ran out and started screaming at Flo and uh, using all sorts of uh, racial epithets and. Uh, Meanwhile, uh, another white guy who saw the beginning of this incident rushed over and uh, told the guy to shut up. And then when he wouldn't, he knocked him out. So uh, that was a pretty good uh, kind of synopsis of uh, <laughs> of Flo's life in Detroit. She was, you know, uh, assailed to a certain extent by racism, but protected by uh, sympathetic white people, which is... Uh, which really says a lot about her her rise in uh, in the society at the time. The high schools were pretty good too, and they even the black high schools and they taught music very well. So she learned a lot in that environment also. And let's go ahead and, and hear our next song. This is the one of the Supremes' early singles. This is during a period when they were known as the No Hit Supremes. This is buttered popcorn with flow on lead vocals, and it was actually written by Barney Ailis, who was Barry Gordon's right hand man on the business side. And a, a white Italian American who uh, made Motown did a lot 
to make Motown the business success that it was. This is Buttered Popcorn by The Supremes. Buttered Popcorn by the Supremes, an early single that was released by Motown but not promoted heavily. And it's one of those coulda, woulda, shoulda moments that if the song had been promoted well and had been a hit, it would have been an entirely different story for Flo Ballard. But as it was, then Diane, later Diana Ross, became the lead vocalist of the band. Tell us about the start of the group. How did Flo start this thing? Because she started it single-handedly. She had auditioned for people and she was the only one auditioning and was then sent out to find other girls who could sing as well. Let me mention that buttered popcorn thing, since you brought it up. Uh, I think if you listen to it, which your listeners just did, you can hear the flow, the power of Flo's voice uh, and her performance. It was really good. It was amazing that Diana, uh, well, pe- people used to laugh at Diana in the, in the studio because it sounded like she was singing through her nose. You know, they try to, they try to control herself, but she'd be doing these nasal songs and uh, uh, everyone would laugh at her. Uh, so it, it was really amazing that, that uh, Diana got out ahead of the game. Uh, what did you just ask me again? I forgot. I was asking you how, how Flo Ballard came to form the Primats, later the Supremes. Oh, yes. Well, uh Someone, uh, want, there were a lot of, you know, Detroit was really a musical um, uh, melting pot or heating pot, whatever you want to call it. The, the scene was boiling. There were a lot of, a lot of uh, black and white people who were making fairly good money in the uh, auto industry, and they wanted to do things outside the home at night, you know, and they'd go to clubs uh, and listen to uh, live music. So there were a lot of opportunities for black and white uh, groups to uh to make their start. And uh, when Flo formed, formed the Supremes with a couple of other girls, they were very popular at the clubs. And finally, uh, someone suggested that they go in and audition for Motown. And uh, they did go in and uh, almost immediately, uh, well, no, not almost immediately, uh, Gordy, Barry Gordy, the manager of Motown, the owner, told them that they were too young to come back. There was something about them that he didn't like. So they made uh, they made some uh, other records for some other companies. Uh, gradually, the uh, uh, their uh, skill increased, and Gordy invited them back and uh, made them uh, recording stars for Motown. Yeah, and it's it's fascinating. It's very much like I, I've heard a lot of people compare Flo Ballard to Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones, and that both of them formed the group, selected the members, and named the group. And both of them were pushed aside and 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 came to early and bad ends. But the big difference between Flo Ballard and Brian Jones is that Brian Jones was demonstrably, and this is kind of unfair to say, but 
well, hard to say, demonstrably a monster, essentially, who did awful things to people on many, many occasions. And I'm a big Pine Stones fan, but I'm not going to sugarcoat it, that, that he brought his own end upon himself. But Flo Ballard doesn't have that kind of reputation at all. People love this woman. Why, why was she squeezed out? Why was she not favored by my Motown's leadership? That's a very good question. Uh, I think it's because Diana was very ambitious and also thinner than Flo, and she was attractive. I think to lots of people more attractive than Flo. Uh, she managed to make herself the leader of the group, uh, basically and somewhat uh, uh, without being noticed, gradually shoving Flo to the side. She she does have a nice singing voice, as you can anybody can tell by listening to her. She was much more intent on getting to the top than Flo was. I think Flo just liked singing immensely and wasn't thinking about maneuvering in the group. I mean, uh, Diana was Gordy's secretary for a long time, and they ended up having an affair. Incidentally, in the in the uh, there was a Motown stage show, uh, not stage show, but uh, recent production. Uh, about Motown, which Gordy himself supervised, and in that in that uh, production, I went to see it. It was on Broadway. The uh, <clears throat> there's a scene. I couldn't believe I was watching this. This show was controlled by Gordy, and there's a scene in which Gordy and Diana are in bed on stage, and Gordy uh, can't perform. You know. Wow. I I was thinking. Gordy was in charge of this. You know, if this had happened to me, uh, <laughs> if I wasn't going to put it on stage in a musical about my life. So he's a very odd guy. And it shows Gordy, you know, apologizing. I, I can't really do it. And Diana saying, well, that's okay. But obviously it did show that they had a, uh, uh, a, a uh, sexual relationship. Uh, and they certainly did because Gordy fathered at least one of her children. But then he wouldn't marry her. And she married uh, Robert Silverstein, a white guy who worked for Motown, even though everyone knew, including Silverstein, that the kid was Gordy's. So there's something very weird going on. There was always something very weird going on there. Uh, I just can't figure it out, except uh, Gordy, Gordy obviously likes women. He's had a lot of girlfriends. Uh, and uh, I'm not sure he's ever been married, but... Uh, I guess he's been married multiple times. Yeah, he's 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 got multiple multiple wives. The second wife was a big part of uh, getting Motown started, and, and then uh, ended badly when she tried to bootleg some Motown singles. But yeah, now he's. Oh, that. He, I'm sorry, I forgot about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, he's. Great. Yeah, so Gordy's definitely been married, but Diana Ross, even before she got entangled with Gordy, was involved with, I believe, Brian Holland of the Holland Dozier Holland production team. So she's just one of these people who followed her heart into directions that were very advantageous for her career at a minimum. Um, you know, I don't, I don't want to engage in like the sexist trope of saying she slept her way to the top because obviously Diane, Diana Ross's vocals were unique. That was the thing, like by going against the grain, like Flo Ballard was sort of a typical R and B powerhouse singer, but Diana Ross had this unique little girl, softer voice that Holland, Dozier Holland were able to, you know, really channel into these pop hits that went over so well and Ed Sullivan or sounded so great coming on after one of the Beatles big hits. And so, yeah, it's just one of those questions. We'll never really know the answer, but 
Another thing that's interesting is is that Flo auditioned initially for a man named um, Milton Jenkins, who not only discovered her and the primettes, but he had another group called the Primes, which featured Eddie Kendricks and Paul Williams, and later goes on to be the Temptations. Can you tell us a little bit about this Milton Jenkins character, and how did he form the two most successful singing groups to come out of Detroit in the 1960s and end up with nothing to show for it? Well, yes, that's a very good question. One of the reasons is that he died fairly early. I mean, he formed those two groups, uh, and he he did very well at it. He picked the right people. They did well, uh, but then he wasn't uh, he wasn't exactly a grasping businessman. He was more like a creative manager. Uh, they, I I don't know about the Temptations, but uh, the Supremes had a contract with him. But when they got an offer from Motown, they just ignored it, and he didn't do anything. Uh, he didn't go to court or anything. That's what that's what a lot of other people would have done is say, "Hey, you've got a contract with me. You can't go to Motown." Uh, so he was a very forgiving person. He then married one of Flo's sisters, uh, so he couldn't have been that mad. Uh, he was a very he was a very talented uh, musical uh, uh, entrepreneur, but he he wasn't a businessman. A uh, very uh, tight-fisted businessman, which was really what Gordy was and probably is. Yeah, you don't get to be as wealthy as Barry Gordy by accident, and and Milton Jenkins apparently didn't have what it took. Let's take a quick sponsor break. When we come back, we'll talk about the early days of the Supremes at Motown. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stephen Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. 
Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. And early on in the primate's career, there's a there's a horrific incident that happens to Flo when she went to a dance with her brother and got separated from her brother. And then um, can you tell us the tragic events that occurred at that point? Yeah, she did get separated from her brother. Uh, she wanted to get a lift home and uh, apparently a, a basketball star who was there, Reginald Harding, uh, who's now dead, uh, offered her a lift home. Then according to Flo never told me about it, but her sisters did uh, much later on when I finally wrote the book about her. Uh, he apparently raped her, and uh, she didn't tell the police or anything. She didn't tell anyone, but she just went into a major depression, and she wouldn't uh, basically stay at home for several weeks, uh, wouldn't return phone calls. She was just trying to fight off the uh, you know, the consequences of being raped. Uh and that that uh, that really set her back. Finally, the other Supremes, that is Diana, uh, Mary uh, Wilson, and uh, the other lady whose name I forgot, uh, lured her out of the house uh, and got her back on the road. But that that certainly uh, didn't help her career, and it I think it added to her general feeling of uh, uh, being uh, oppressed or depressed uh, by at least parts of society. It didn't help. Her. Yeah, definitely not. It's it's a horrific story. And, and the, the Reginald Harding story, I mean, we're so used to hearing stories like that of athletes, elite athletes acting with impunity. But this is decades before the Me Too movement. So, oh, you know, yeah. poor poor Flo had no essentially no recourse. And it is interesting that the the group did, you know, led by Diane and, and Mary Wilson, seek her out and they pulled her out of this depression. And so by at least at this point in 62, 63, Diane Ross very much wanted to keep Flo in the group and, and, and keep her going. But eventually they do break through, at least they're hanging out at Motown constantly. And they, and they start to get some gigs uh, singing backup. They sing backup for Marva Gaye, sing backup for Marv Johnson, who, who was a performer that along with Jackie Wilson, I mean, Barry Gordy basically made his name writing hit songs and producing hit songs for Jackie Wilson. And then later Marv Johnson's his second act that gets big before. I think he had to trade him off to United Artists because Motown didn't have the promotional muscle to to um, you know promote hit records at that point. But eventually Motown in this period does start having hits on their own label. Uh, Smokey Robinson, The Miracles in particular, leading the way. Mary Wells is leading the way with some massive hit singles. What was the situation? I mean, who was trying to produce records on the Supremes and why did they not hit? Uh, I think, well, Gordy was very, uh, he's a very smart businessman. He'd try, he'd get one group of uh, writers, songwriters, one group of producers and one uh, group of singers together and try a couple of tunes. And if that group didn't work, if that combination didn't work, it was like three interlocking discs on a, on a machine, actually a machine from an auto factory. And then, then they'd switch the disc. Then the, the group would go to the next, the group of singers would go to the next group of writers, 
you know, and then they'd switch again. The group of singers would go to the next group of writers and the next group of producers. Uh, he was trying to find the best possible combination. And as you pointed out, uh, HDH, uh, and, uh, uh, Smokey Robinson as a producer. And, uh, I think I got it right, but I get the mix up myself. Anyway, he found out, he found the right combination to work with the Supremes. And then they stuck with that combination for quite a long time. Yeah, it's interesting. Smokey Robinson didn't miss much, but he completely whiffed with the Primettes. Uh, after all, was the first one, and then uh, a guy named Freddie Gorman wrote a song called "I Want a Guy" that Diane sang lead on. But yeah, and then they tried buttered popcorn with Barney Ellis um, writing that one, which I believe was his only turn as a as a songwriter. I could be wrong, but it was the most well-known song that he produced and it's very interesting if that thing had hit it would have taken them in an entirely different direction it's a flagrantly sexual song yeah and 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 it would have would have positioned flow as this you know sex bomb uh sort of persona and so and and you know it was gordy's decision to not promote that heavily and then he hands them off to holland or holland and they and they have um hits with beginning with when the love light starts shining through his eyes it makes number 23 on the pop charts in the fall of 63 and at that point they're touring on the motown review and then the dick clark tour what was their status on those early tours and how'd they fare let me just mention i'm glad you mentioned the sexual angle on buttered popcorn because when gordy heard about that he hadn't he hadn't uh perceived it when he heard about that he was shocked he didn't want to be in the porn business so uh, that's probably one reason that book wasn't promoted. Uh, excuse me, that song wasn't promoted. Uh, what was your What was your next question? I missed. Well, about the early tours that the Supremes did first on the Motown Review and then the Dick Clark tour, they were absolutely the opening act as fits the No Hit Supremes. How'd they do on those tours, and and how did their status change when they did start to get hits? Well, as uh, at the beginning of that the tour that I think you're talking about, uh, they didn't have any hits. So they were the opening number, which is the, just a warm up number for the big groups. Uh, then, uh, as their, uh, their first song, uh, became a first hit song became very popular. Uh, they were moved up slowly in the, uh, pecking order or the order of appearance on stage. And, uh, you know, they kept wondering why, because they were, weren't really in contact with the headquarters in Detroit. So uh, they'd be moved up slowly. And finally, they got near the end. And as soon as they came out, people would be applauding. Uh, and they wondered why. And then they realized that they, something something must be happening. So they rushed out. This is pre-cell pre, pre phone error, obviously. They rushed out and bought copies of Billboard to see magazine to see where their songs were and uh the song they just recorded had risen to number one that that happened while they were on this month-long tour uh it's a very very different uh era then when you know you couldn't tell what was happening unless you uh paid uh whatever it was a dollar or two for a magazine and then found the right page uh but yeah that's what happened their songs became more popular and then, then they really hit the top. Then they were at the top for several years. Yeah, Where Did Our Love Go happens on that first Dick Clark tour. And it's interesting. Uh, I've read number of, numerous accounts of of uh, both white and black acts that, that toured with Dick Clark. And Dick Clark actually, you know, has a mixed reputation for his various business maneuvers and, and for 
some people see him as a bland, somebody who blanded rock and roll and was kind of the opposite of Alan Freed. But everyone consistently says that he treated all the acts on his tours equally well and that he did his best to protect black acts from the vicious segregation that was going on in the South. And so that, that touring with Dick Clark was very much an esprit de corps and a, and a, and a team spirit that, yeah, that the Supremes uh, plugged into very well. But then, you know, once they're big, they just stay big. Tell us about breaking their breakthrough with Ed Sullivan. Actually, Steph tells me it's time to cue. So let me let me cue one more. This is Ain't That Good News from a tribute album to Sam Cooke that the Supremes recorded. And this is one of the few songs that Flo Ballard got to sing lead on. Ain't That Good News. And that was the Supremes covering Sam Cooke's Ain't That Good News with Flo Ballard on lead vocals. And you can definitely hear this was an incredibly talented singer, uh, a woman who, had she not been in the shadow of the most successful uh, lead singer on earth, would, you know, uh, virtually anything was possible with that kind of talent and the, and the Motown exposure. But at this point, she's essentially enjoying the ride. I mean, even being the number two singer in the Supremes was a pretty sweet gig. Tell us about their their rise and their success on Ed Sullivan and the Copacabana uh, uh, nightclub and, and their tours of England. Well, the uh, Ed Sullivan show, you know, it's funny if you watch the, uh, I believe you can still see their original appearance on Ed Sullivan on YouTube, how far TV has come in terms of special effects, because the Supremes are performing on the Ed Sullivan show, which was the premier TV show, uh, certainly the premier TV variety show at the time, and their backdrop, rather than even flashing lights, was like a huge piece of white paper that hung from the ceiling uh, of the stage, and that's what they were. And they had one microphone uh, on a stand. So that's what they. That's how they were uh, invited to perform. It wasn't that they were being discriminated against. It's just that TV was really in its infancy. Uh, I remember seeing that show. I thought they were fantastic. And it was really, it was really fantastic because they were black also. This is very unusual to have uh, black women uh, <clears throat> who were, I must say, much different than the previous black female stars. The previous black female stars were like <clears throat> Big Mama Thornton. Uh, you know, they were overweight. Uh, very soulful. They sang slow, depressing songs. They were great musicians, but the Supremes, which fit in with what was happening with the integration in society, the Supremes fit in with what, you know, what was going on. Uh, everything was getting lighter in all senses. You know, it was easier to, to mix with people. This is all before the Detroit riot of 68, uh, which put a damper on it. But, uh, the, uh, uh, the whole thing was just a very light, progressive uh, upsurge of uh, interracial harmony in all senses of the word. Yeah, and, and it, to be fair, they did build on the work that had come out of the Brill Building with groups like the Shirelles um, and the Chiffons and others who were who were you know singing songs by Goffin and King and 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 others. So it wasn't 
just out of the blue. And the Marvelettes obviously had, had hit for Motown as well, but the magnitude of their stardom and, and the, none of those other acts. I mean, I think the Supremes were second only to Dave Clark five in terms of number of appearances on the Ed Sullivan show in the 1960s. And there's no way in the, in 2023 to comprehend how big Ed Sullivan was. I mean, famously 73 million people tuned in to see the Beatles on Ed Sullivan in February of 1964, but he would consistently do numbers in the twenties and 30 million viewers week yeah. in week out. And it's, it's just impossible to comprehend how big a deal it was for the Supremes to basically become regulars on the most popular show, not just the most popular show, at the time, but the most popular show in the history of American television. So they ascended to this rarefied, you know, superstar status. And then they play the Copa Cabana. And the, the Copa is this famous nightclub, you know, infamously partly owned by the Genovese family. I think I think um, Frank Costello was one of the original owners before he was shot in the head by uh, the Chin Gigante and, and retired from the business. But you know, Sam Cooke had famously flopped at the Copacabana. Elvis never even tried to play the Copacabana. What was it about the Supremes? How did they succeed with that nightclub audience? Well, they did very well there, and it was very surprising. I, I think it was because they were uh, basically uh, dainty and polite young ladies. I mean, they sang songs, but they were dressed uh, like young, like proper young women, and they... Uh, they sang uh, songs that didn't have any, uh, or very rarely had any sexual overtones, and they were nice people. You know, they they fit in at the uh, at the Copa. The uh, you know the uh, one thing about that club is there was I don't believe there was a stage, or if there was, they didn't use it. So the Supremes were standing right in among the tables uh, at one end of the the dining tables at one end of the club. So they, you, you couldn't actually have a, a riotous singer there because he, he or she would kick up, you know, would kick over a table or destroy someone's cocktail. Uh, they, they were polite. <clears throat> they were polite young ladies while they were great performers. And, you know, there, there's probably a visceral fear that white people have or had, or maybe they still have it about black performers being, um, sort of madmen or mad women, uh, like maybe Tina Turner or uh, uh, a lot of uh, the black male guys, they jump all over the place. You know, you wouldn't want them near one of your expensive cocktails, but the Supremes, <laughs> you knew they weren't going to upset anything. Yeah, they weren't going to be doing the leaping splits like Jackie Wilson or James Brown uh, onto people's right. cocktail tables. So they, 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 they fit in very well. But But this is the time period when Flo starts to get pushed to one side where uh, she's getting fewer and fewer lead vocals, lead songs that she had sung lead on in rehearsal then are given to Diana Ross. In particular, House of the Rising Sun, the cover of the Animals' massive hit, was was given to Diana Ross. Um, and Diana starts making jokes about Flo on stage and calling her fat and various things. How did Flo react to that? What was her counter move? Well, that's her problem. She didn't really have any counter move. Uh, she just absorbed it and got more and more depressed. Uh, it was, I don't want to compare it to the rape that had happened earlier, but that was her defense, I think, to just, her general defense, to just sort of uh, enfold herself and uh, be dignified and not, not strike back. Uh, 
Mary Mary Wilson also didn't respond to any of that. There was a a famous uh, scene in which this is between Mary Wilson and uh, Diana Ross, where Diana's at one one club or one appearance. Diana Ross's mic suddenly failed, so <laughs> she grabbed the mic out of Mary Wilson's hand and started singing in it. Uh, Mary, although she didn't cause a fuss, grabbed the mic back, and then Diana grabbed it back from her. So they were basically, without <laughs> saying anything, they were catfighting on stage. Uh, but uh, you know that was that was kind of the person Diana is, and Flo just probably would have uh, just stood there. You know she's. She wasn't the combative type. She just absorbed the blows and tried to go on. That was a that was one of her problems. And so let's let's hear our final song, and then we'll talk about her forced departure from the group and and her her downfall. This is "Love Ain't Love." This is from Flo Ballard's solo career on ABC Records. And that was Love Ain't Love by Florence Ballard uh, solo on ABC Records after she had been uh, squeezed out of the Supremes. So tell us, Peter, how did that squeeze happen? What, How was she forced from the group? And, and was there a warning? Was there a decline in her behavior? Did she act out? Why, why did the Motown make such a big move to, to disrupt their most successful act? That's a very good question. I, I, I really think that Diane... You know, first of all, let me say that Mary Wilson was uh, used to being a uh, a non-player and all this stuff. She just kept very quiet. She had been uh, uh, transferred from one family to another during her growing up period and just learned to keep her, you know, learned to keep her mouth shut. And she'd done very well by doing that. And that's what she kept on doing. She saw that uh, that was trying to get flow out of the group. Uh, but she wouldn't say anything. She wouldn't support either of them, which is probably the right thing to do since she was in the middle. But uh, she didn't. She didn't help Flo or didn't help Diane. And however, Flo uh, uh, just reacted by getting more and more sullen and uh, probably less of a flamboyant performer, uh, which made it easier for uh, Diane to finally convince Gordy to kick Flo out of the group. She just became. She just became depressed and sullen, something like what happened after she was raped uh, much earlier in her life. Uh, so it made it relatively easy for uh, uh, Gordy and uh, Diana to get rid of her. She was also, you know, she was also the main competitor, Diana. So that Mary Wilson wasn't. Diana was uh, afraid of Flo for obvious reasons because Flo was very talented. Mary Wilson was a great backup singer. Uh, and uh, but Flo is the real competition, and she wanted her. Diana wanted Flo out of there. And so when she is kicked out of the of the group, she does hire lawyers and and actually receives a, a six figure settlement. But hardly any of the money ended up in her pockets. What what happened? How did she end up in that situation? Well, that was her. Then, then the worst aspect of her personality came out. She just 
she wouldn't, uh, people would give papers to her to sign and she just signed them without reading them. Uh, so the, the settlement that she got was much less than she should have gotten. And then, then the lawyer that she hired, she had a hard time getting a lawyer. The lawyer that she hired, uh, stole the money. Basically, uh, he, uh, he must have seen that he, oh, he certainly couldn't have been a great guy, but he must have also seen that she was uh, not the fighter type and that she just, you know, salt or feel bad. Uh, so he stole he stole probably 98% of the money that Motown had given her. Now, it was a bad settlement to start with. It didn't, it didn't include any of the royalties on the uh, songs, you know, any future royalties. Uh, my future royalties on the Supreme songs when Flow was fired were stupendous. You know, they were they went on for the show. The songs were recorded and re-recorded year after year after year. Flow should have been very rich. I mean, Mary Wilson hung on with the group and was making in the probably in the seventies eighty thousand a year just from royalties, uh, which was quite an amount at the time. But uh, basically, every lots of people saw the opportunity to just, you know, uh, treat Flo badly monetarily because she she just got disgusted and would sign anything. And uh, and so they stole all the money from her and she was left in poverty. And tell us about her attempted solo career with ABC Records. Who who, who was um, producing her and, and, and how did that go? And how did it, you know, why did it not go further than it did? Well, possibly because she had married... Uh, uh, Tommy, her her husband, her you know her only her only marriage, and uh, he had, but he wasn't he wasn't particularly talented. He had been a he had been Gordy's chauffeur, and uh, so he wasn't really in the record business in any real sense. And then uh, he tried to uh, he signed her up BC Records, uh, but they didn't really know what to do with her. They didn't have any of the talent that Motown had in songwriting and so on. So when her first oh they. Motown had also prevented her from calling herself a former Supreme. Now that would have been, that would have been, an, I think, a very helpful thing to do. You know, the new, the radio stations, et cetera, would have gone wild. New album by former Supreme Florence Ballard. Uh, you know, she's she's out of, she was kicked out of Supremes, and now she's back. Flo Ballard with, you know, I'm climbing the mountain or something like that. Uh, but nothing. They just they. I only agree. Motown forced them not to ever say that she was going to be a Supreme again. And uh, excuse me, that she, she had been a Supreme. So uh, all these opportunities were lost. ABC didn't know what to do with her. And uh, uh, they just they just dropped her after they after her only solo album was a failure. I think her her mood of discouragement certainly affected infected them. But they also could have had a had better managers. Her uh, Tommy Chapman, who she married, uh, was her manager, but he was he was not a professional. If she had, if she had married someone else or just gotten a separate manager who had any uh, gumption, he would have uh, he would have uh, oh, for instance, tried to get her to form another group, uh, the New Supremes or something, or indicate that it was a competing group with the Supremes with people with women who looked like Mary and Diana, you know. Something like that it would have gotten some attention, but they didn't do anything. They just uh, let her career die. And then 
she reaches the point we discussed at the beginning where she's actually on on assistance uh, for to to help with her dependent children and you helped publicize that which drew quite a bit of attention and she did get a little bit of public shine like she got to sing at some benefit performances in her final days tell us about those like she did get a tiny bit of glory in some live events towards the end yeah she did uh with various uh other female singers and other companies were sympathetic to her they they knew what a talented person she was and how depressed she was at being uh thrown out of uh the supremes i mean she'd gone from basically you know, nothing to the very top and then down to the bottom again. It's like a horrible roller coaster or parachute jump uh, in only a few years. I mean, it would have it would have uh, traumatized everybody. And it really did with her, coupled with the rape and uh, uh, her her general uh, what, had be- what had to become a general attitude toward life. But no, uh, you know, she sang she sang in a few concerts. People applauded her wildly. Uh, that is, the audience applauded her wildly, but nothing really came of it. And uh, then she had she had uh, three children. Then her then she got divorced, uh, and then she died. It was like uh, she never really recovered from the uh, <clears throat> from the blow, the original blow of uh, being forced out of the world's most popular female singing group. Yeah, and that's a blow, uh, you know, almost anybody would have trouble recovering from. Brian Jones, for his part, certainly never recovered from being kicked out of the Rolling Stones. But, you know, unlike Flo, he had rendered himself useless, you know, breaking his hand, trying to punch girlfriends and things like that. So he couldn't even play guitar by the end, whereas Flo apparently kept her chops to the end. And and her death at age 32 from heart disease makes me think of uh, Mama Cass Elliot, who was also 32 years old when she died of a heart attack. So, and and both of them, you know, you do mention that Flo had drunk heavily, especially in the period right after being kicked out of the Supreme. So that that couldn't have helped. But nonetheless, just an immensely tragic loss, and and somebody who brought the world has brought millions and millions of people so much joy through the the group that she created, the Supreme. So I'm so happy, Peter, that you were able to come on the show and we could um, help honor the memory of Florence Ballard. My guest has been Peter Benjamin. The book is The Lost Supreme, The Life of Dream Girl, Florence Ballard. So here's to you, Flo. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Monday, Nate welcomes Pat Slashell to discuss his book, Texas is the Reason, The Mavericks of Lone Star Punk. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. 
And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 